Hey everyone, my name is Will Malice, and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving the community since 1890. And this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian, called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, September 15th, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So you're in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. Hey, uh, I'm Irina, assistant news editor. I'm Catherine Eston, an assistant news editor. I'm Chris McLaughlin, an assistant news editor. And I'm Abby Charpentier, the news editor. All right, so um, we'll begin with the first story for this week, which is about the Lincoln North Village apartments being torn down. So this was written by... Matt Berg, who is an assistant op-ed editor at the Collegian, but he also writes news articles. And he reported that UMass plans to tear down Lincoln and North Village apartments for, quote, modern apartment-style housing. Uh, this new housing is expected to hold around, um, around 730 undergraduate students and 165 graduate students. The university claimed that Lincoln and North Village apartments were not able to be renovated due to their age and condition. They also mentioned that there was no financial obligation from the university uh, and that it's coming from a private contractors for a public-private partnership. Lincoln currently has 150 apartment, 115 apartments for graduates and undergraduate students, uh, while North Village has 170 graduate family housing unions. So uh, what do you guys think about this? Wait, I have a question, actually. I don't know if we know the answer to this. Are they used right now? for graduate students mainly, um, or is it also undergrad? I believe, so Lincoln, I believe, is um, uh, it's for both undergrads and graduates. I don't know specifics, so they could be mainly for graduate students. Uh, I'm not sure about that. And I believe um, North Village is more uh, for like, I think like graduate students, but it's for like families, students mm-hmm. um, who have a dependent living with them. Gotcha. Yeah, I remember reading there was a letter to the editor that was published in the op-ed section last week. I believe it was in the print edition Tuesday night, so it would have come out on Wednesday. Uh, but it was from someone who talked about the importance of having those family units and how you build that community, and they fear that's going to be gone if they intermingle the undergraduates with the graduate families. Yeah, last week um, I talked to a student. Um, her name's Tracy Lee, and she is a non-traditional student, so she's um, she came back to UMass after um, you know raising her family and stuff. So she originally came to UMass in the early 2000s, and she was in, I can't believe, can't remember if it was Lincoln or North Village, but she was talking about how raising her boys when they were young with a community like that, where everything, where everyone's really supportive and you know they all understand what everyone's going through, both being families um, and raising kids and being a student and having all sorts of assignments. Um, yeah, she just voiced her concern that she's really worried about that and how UMass is offering to assist these families living in Lincoln and North Village with um, services to help them find communities around Amherst, but she doesn't think that they're going to work to build these communities again. Mm-hmm. So I know that that's a concern with students. Yeah, I actually um, I actually did grow up in like uh, similar situations. My parents didn't go to UMass, but um, they were getting their graduate degree when I was a kid, so I grew up in like one of these kind of residential areas, and I remember the exact same thing happening to us when I was a kid. They had to make room for a new undergrad, so they like changed up the apartments, and we had to find a different place off campus. And I know that was really hard for them to find like an affordable place that still had that community. So it just like 
yeah, I hope that it's not the same situation for everyone else and that like they can make it um, an easy transition, but I don't think that that is always true and that always happens, unfortunately. Yeah, so I think in the article, um, it was mentioned that they're planning on starting construction on the new um, housing in like 2022. Mm -hmm. So hopefully like they give people plenty of time to like find new housing and um, yeah. and help them out with that. I believe according to the letters that were sent out to residents of these two areas, they had to be out by this May. So they have, they don't have, I mean, they do have somewhat of a notice, but in terms of keeping up with their classwork and all their other responsibilities, this just adds to their uh, challenges, trying to find a new affordable place to live in this amount of time. Mm -hmm. Well, I was curious, does it say when the project will be completed? Because it said, you know, they're closing them in 2020, but then the project's beginning in 2022. So I'm wondering where is this extra, you know, thousand or so people going to go in those two years in between? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's something the university currently has a plan, or at least not a plan they've announced for. And especially when they've accepted the larger income in class, you know, you figure that'll be when this incoming class is going into their senior year is when these buildings will start being built. Yeah, and it just seems so like so sudden. Like we were talking about this, you know, last week about like where are they gonna after accepting eight hundred more people than last year, like where are they gonna house everyone and just all of a sudden it's they're tearing down these apartments and Okay, so I will move on. Um the next article was um written by uh one of the new staff writers, uh John Boudet. Uh, and it's about some new meal plans that have come to campus. So one meal plan was uh, a new unlimited meal plan. And what this does is it uh, eliminates dining dollars and guest wipes from the plan, but gives students unlimited dining hall swipes uh, as well as unlimited grab-and-go. And this is uh, $455 less than uh, the unlimited 500 plan and then $247 less than the unlimited 250 plan. There's also a new no student goes hungry policy, which provides an option on Spire to uh, request free meal swipes. Um, this is a one-time option, but uh, once a student activates this policy, they get a call from a staff member of the Dean of Students Office to find a more permanent solution. Uh, and then there's also the UMass Gives On Going Donation Plan, uh, where people can donate to a meal plan scholarship fund, fund and they currently have $18,000 so far. There's also a graduate plan called Your Campus Meal Plan 2, which sells uh, meals in blocks of 25 for $245. Uh, and a meal is considered a swipe or um, anything less than $10.50 at retail dining locations. And these meal plans were instituted to help combat food insecurity on campus. So based on these new meal plans, do you guys think that these are enough or that the school is doing enough to fight food insecurity? I think it's a good thing that they're at least expanding the options that students have at their disposal. Um, it's, it seems like there's now more, more options, more availability for students of different income levels and different who want different things in their meal plan who maybe don't need the full unlimited plan um, or who just couldn't afford the full unlimited plan. I'm not saying it's a perfect solution, but I think that it's a step in the right direction at the very least. I mean, I think I really like the idea of having that almost emergency fallback if somebody needs those few days. Uh, I'm interested to see on how many people use it this semester uh, and whether the dean of students' office getting involved would be a major deterrent. Uh, because I understand why they'd have that put in place, make sure that a student who might not necessarily reach out is now 
uh, almost expected to have someone reach out to them, and it's a way to find students who need that help. Um, but I'd be interested to see whether anyone chooses not to because they don't want to deal with talking to the dean of students' office. Yeah, definitely. And I wonder, like, also what that permanent solution would be um, that they mentioned, like, is, this, is the university just saying they find a permanent solution and just going to go by like a case-by-case -case basis or is there like some kind of plan as to what that would be? Right, like if a student were to invoke it in the middle of November, you know, if it's the last week of school, I'm sure they'd say, okay, well, here we might give you an extension or here's alternate solutions. But if it's, you know, the middle of November and the person says, I can't afford to expand on the meal plan I have, I've used it up already. I'm just not sure what the university would be in a position to do at that point. Yeah. yeah. Do you guys have anything else? All right, so um, our next article, um, you wrote this, Catherine. It was about 9-11. Um, I did. So I, I kind of started with the question. This was something I thought about over the summer. I knew our first print edition was going to be coming out on the 18th anniversary of September 11th. And I kind of thought, you know, how is it talked about on campus? Uh, you know, a majority of students at the university were very young when it happened. You know, most of the students, I think, were born between 96 and 2001. Uh, so when you look at that, I was interested to see, especially in uh, political science courses, how that's talked about as an event in American history. And I was very lucky I got to talk, I went back and compared, you know, articles in the Daily Collegian from 2001 and how they talked about, about it back then. And then I talked with uh, Professor Mednikoff from, he's the chair of the Judaic and Near Eastern Studies Department at the university. Uh, he actually started teaching here in 1999. Uh, so it was very interesting for him to then be, you know, be teaching about Middle Eastern policy in Middle Eastern countries uh, and to see that change over the next few years. Uh, and he talked about the different courses he's taught, and it's kind of gone from uh, his courses almost being a coping mechanism, people who have lived through the event and are trying to understand why it happened, uh, to people who have lived with the consequences of it, you know, people of our generation trying to figure out why do we have the TSA uh, or wondering why is Islamophobia and anti-Semitism on the rise in the United States after 2016. Uh, so that's something he more focuses on now, that this is an event that has a lot of consequences uh, for the country and politics as a whole, rather than not just in the United States, but also in the Middle East uh, with the ongoing wars, uh, but th rather than looking at it as this is a lived event that we need to deal with. It, it was a good article to do. Yeah, um, it. yeah it's kind of interesting, like, just seeing that how, um, I mean, I'm assuming all of us, like, we haven't, we're alive then, but we might not, like, remember it or certainly not to the level of like college students back in uh in 2001 but um yeah it's definitely interesting how um they're kind of teaching it more from like like you said looking at the consequences and um looking at it as like history rather than um from the aspect of people who have like lived through it yeah i think one interesting point he made was about he almost said you know it's a historical event that we have a lot of sources for because he's saying you know people understand it's tragic but they're not going to have that same Know, guttural reaction to seeing the planes hit the towers uh, but they can understand the consequences they can understand why people felt the way they did and he's interested he always learns something from his students based on how they react and how they want to talk about it yeah i think next year is going to be the first year of students who were born after yeah i mean there's a right? couple this year but yeah yeah since it's handful, right but... at that deadline mm -hmm. but next year it's going to be the first class with the majority born after the event wow I mean, a lot of people keep making that point with the election, that it's going to be the first election with a majority of people who never lived in the America before. Mm -hmm. Or not a majority of people, but a large a lot, amount yeah. of people. <laughs> cool. Thanks for writing that. Oh, um, thanks for letting me talk about it. Um, so, uh, Chris, I uh, want to talk about um, an article about Tripoli. 
Sure. So the triple E virus, which stands for Eastern Equine Encephalitis, is a mosquito-borne disease which has been spreading around the state of Massachusetts over the past few weeks in the end of summer. Um, it's a life-threatening disease where um, there's only like a 33% uh, death rate, 66% um, survival rate. But even so, it's a scary disease. There have been seven cases statewide and not in humans and nine cases in animals, um, one of which was um, unfortunately fatal. There was also a case in Rhode Island that I heard of in which a man contracted and he also died. So it's a very scary disease. Um, and basically, the town of Amherst was at moderate risk for the disease and some surrounding communities were on high and critical risk, which are the highest two levels, it looks like. Um, recently, they were demoted back down to moderate, but still, as there's a lot of mosquito activity in these last few weeks of summer, and even in early fall, um, mosquitoes can still stick around until the first frost, so it's important to put in measures to keep yourself safe and keep those around you safe such as wearing mosquito repellent at night, wearing long sleeve clothing and long pants, um, emptying standing water, and just uh, maybe putting like baby, like mosquito netting over your children's play pens and things like that. Um, it talks about it more in the article, but really just being conscious of the risk and knowing what to do to prevent you and your family from getting this terrible disease. So kind of scary since it's in the area, but... I think one of my main concerns writing this too was um, just the number of people who go out at night in and around this area, just so they're aware of the risk factors, because a lot of people do go out at night and you know maybe they're not their first thought isn't oh if a mosquito bites me I could get a serious disease. So also, um, you had another article about the MFA. Yes. So much lighter topic. <laughs> um, the um, Museum of Fine Arts in Boston is doing, um, well, UMass Amherst is now a part of the MFA's university membership program. And what that means is that students, staff, and faculty of UMass Amherst who have a valid ID um, can go to the MFA in Boston and basically go up to reception, show them their ID, and get in free for the day. Um, and I actually went myself and um, kind of did the whole experience where I went up to reception, showed them my ID. They told me, you know, here's your free ticket. You can come back anytime as long as you have your ID on you. Um, and it's a really cool experience because it's a, it's a big museum, um, 500,000 works of art from all corners of the world. You have antiquity and contemporary, um, and there's just so much to see. And UMass isn't the only school that does this. There's a lot of other schools, I think, like something over 30 other schools. UMass Boston's the only other UMass school that does it, but um, if you're an undergraduate, a graduate, continuing education, um, it's a great opportunity to take advantage of if you're in the area. It's cool. Um, I know like UMass does trips to like New York and stuff. I wonder if they'll do trips to like Boston to specifically go to like the MFA. I could see it. I could see like an art class from around here, like doing a field trip just to go to the MFA if everyone can get in for free and it's no extra cost to students. Cool. So um, thanks for writing both of those. No problem. Um, so uh, as a preview for an upcoming event, um, there's the 15th annual Bread Festival that's taking place on um, Sunday, uh, September 22nd 
uh, goes from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Uh, and it's hosted by Hungry Ghost Bread, uh, and it's on 62 State Street in Northampton. Catherine, if you want to... Sure. So I'll, I'll likely be covering this this Sunday. Um, I'll do my best to live tweet so you can definitely follow me there and see what I'm up to. Maybe I'll even be able to come back next weekend when we're recording the next podcast and talk a bit about that. Uh, I think it's a personal interest to me. I took up bread making as a hobby this weekend. Uh, I made eight loaves. It was very fun. Uh, if you happen to have a kitchen, it's not as hard as it looks, which was surprising to me. So maybe this weekend I'll be able to talk to some experts in the field figure out where I can take this forward and perhaps come back and tell everyone else how we can all become our own professional little bread makers. Cool. Um, look forward to that. So uh, I think that's all the time we have for now. It was great having everyone listen. Uh, tune in next time. And once again, I'm Will Malice. I'm Irina Kostake. Mm-hmm. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Chris McLaughlin. And I'm Abby Sharpentier. And you've been listening to the Collegiate News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquim Crood and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.